0: Welcome to the fifth episode of the Dolman Law Group podcast. I'm here with my business partner, best friend, wife, and trial lawyer of the Dolman Law Group, Miss Julia Dolman. Say hello, Julia, to our audience.
1: Thank you for that introduction. Hello.
0: So Julia, Julia's a trial lawyer at Dolman Law Group. You know, tell us about what the litigation process is like. You know, a lot of individuals come to me with this fear and trepidation that it's a scary process. Well, I have to go to court. Is my case going to go to trial? What is is this a big worry what's going to happen tell me to take me through the process
1: so here's the thing you know a lot of people first of all insurance companies are cheap as we know and if they did the right thing we'd all be out of a job as personal injury attorneys so when I first meet with a client is when we are filing a lawsuit on their behalf against the at-fault party or against their own insurance company for their uninsured underinsured motorist carrier so when I meet with the client the negotiations have failed in pre-suit. The insurance company isn't offering enough money to even pay the medical bills, let alone attorney's fees costs and to of course compensate the client for their loss. So, I meet with the client, the client comes in and the first questions I do get are, you know, people are nervous. They're, they they watch, you know, TV shows, they see the courtroom as it's portrayed, you know, in television and they say, "Is my case going to trial? What's going to happen?" So, the first thing I like to explain is There are many processes and things and events that need to occur prior to a case ever seeing a courtroom. And so the first thing that I explain is that what will happen is that you'll go through the litigation process. So you'll first go through a process called discovery. And what that means is each party has an opportunity to ask the other sets of written questions called interrogatories. So what our office does is we help clients go through those questions, and it's basically like background information when you file a personal injury claim.
0: How personal are the questions?
1: So a lot of times people, you know, the questions are, what I like to explain first, is they're promulgated by the Florida Supreme Court, meaning there were so many plaintiffs for personal injury car accident cases that the Florida Supreme Court said, hey listen, we're gonna make every single claimant fill out the same 30 questions for you know each of these cases. So a lot of it is personal in the sense that they're asking background information, who are the doctors that you've treated with over the last 10 years? Right. Have you ever been convicted of a felony or a crime involving truth or dishonesty regardless of the punishment? And so people look at that and they say, well hey, listen, I was, you know, convicted of, you know, petty theft 20 years ago. You know, what does that have to do with my claim for, for neck and back pain? And the reality is, it really doesn't. I mean, does it affect the fact that you're making a complaint for neck pain? No. But what people need to understand, what I try to explain to them, is that when you file a lawsuit, when you initiate litigation in the state of Florida, you open yourself up to the defense finding out things about you, basically everything about you short of things that are obviously privileged by you know the attorney-client privilege and things of that nature so the questions are personal in nature but the scope of discovery in Florida is very broad and so they're allowed to ask these types of inquiries
0: what is off limits
1: well off limits like I said um, obviously they can't ask you anything that you've talked about you know with your attorney or anyone working in your attorney office as that is privileged and
0: explain that what's the, the attorney-client privilege you know, how detailed is that what, what goes into the that? the
1: attorney-client privilege is very broad and it's taken very seriously by the courts obviously attorneys have fiduciary duty to their client right and unless it's something where you tell you know your attorney that you're either planning to harm a third party or yourself as the client you know attorneys are bound by their duty to you to keep everything that you say and everything that's actually involved in your case confidential at all times
0: So then after we're done with discovery, you know, let's just say after we're done with interrogatories, what comes next?
1: So after interrogatory questions are answered, typically what happens, you know, behind the scenes, at least if you have a good defense attorney on the other side, is that they're going out and they're subpoenaing all your medical records. Of course, as a matter of course, when we send out a demand in pre-litigation, we send out your your medical records that are associated with the injuries that you're claiming. But the insurance company is also going to want to gather all of your prior medical records. So in those interrogatories, when you talk about your primary care physician that you saw 10 years ago, guess what? The defense attorney is going to go out and they're going to send out a subpoena to all the doctors that they can find on you so that they can gather all that information. And really what they're doing there is they're trying to check off all their boxes to ensure that you don't have similar complaints in the past or if you do so that they can evaluate your claim based on any pre-existing issues that you might have. So after all that information is gathered, typically what they'll do is they'll set you for what's called a deposition.
0: Tell me about deposition. What is the, What goes into deposition? What can be expected? How scary is the process for someone who's never gone through this before?
1: So there's nothing, you know, I always tell people there's nothing to be worried about. It's not like, you know, what you see in TV with someone pounding on the desk saying you can't handle the truth or things of that nature. Um, Typically, it's very professional. Um, A defense attorney is there simply to do a job. And basically what a deposition is, and we at Dolman Law Group obviously always sit down and spend several hours with our clients going over deposition questions to expect and the best ways to go about answering them and everything they need to know. But typically what you'll have is you'll have yourself as the plaintiff and it'll be at a neutral uh, location such as a court reporter's office and you'll have a court reporter there that's the stenographer, they're the person taking down a transcript of the questions and answers and then you'll have a defense attorney that's essentially asking you questions about your prior medical history, any prior personal injury claims that you might have had, the accident that you've been involved in that's the subject of this litigation, your medical treatment that you've received the effects it's had on your case, everything that they're going to want to know to evaluate your case and to decide whether or not you're going to present fairly at trial as a good witness and how to go ahead and financially evaluate your case as well.
0: So after the deposition, what can be expected?
1: So, and let me just back up because a lot of times the first question that I get from people is how long is this process going to take?
0: Yeah, how long will it take before I see a check Ms. Don? I mean,
1: clearly, people want to know when they're going to be compensated for their loss. And there's two real answers to this question. Right. The first part is, what I tell them is that, ideally, what the court system says mm. is that from start to finish, yeah. start being the filing of the actual lawsuit and not the accident itself, but from start to finish, the process should ideally take a year and a half. Now, what oh. I have learned through our own practices, right. and we move cases as quickly as possible. Yeah, we do. Is that it takes approximately 10 months to get from filing of the complaint to your cases resolved either at mediation or shortly thereafter. And so to go back to your initial question, which is what happens after the deposition, <coughs> it's a process called mediation that we're then required by the courts to go to before you're allowed to go to trial.
0: So after you're done with the deposition, you notice the case for mediation? Correct. And then what happens? you we obviously it takes a little while to get that coordinated through both the mediators calendar, defense lawyer, and our calendars. And once we get that scheduled, usually how long after deposition does that occur?
1: So typically you're seeing a mediation scheduled between three and five months post deposition. And that's, you know, for Dolman Law Group here again we move cases as quick as possible because Clearly we work off contingency fees in personal injury cases, meaning we don't make a living and get compensated until cases resolve. So I always tell people, look, it doesn't benefit me to take your file, meet with you, and then put it on a shelf for a year and let it sit and collect dust. Because personal injury claimants are not putting retainer retainer agreements up front. Uh, We work when a case resolves is when we get paid as well. So we move them as quick as possible and typically you know we're on the phone with defense attorneys trying to get mediation scheduled on the books and you'll see it around you know four to five months after your deposition to allow the defense the opportunity to again ensure that they're collecting all the evidence that you've produced from your deposition in terms of prior medical records and things of that nature
0: take me through the mediation itself you know i walk into mediation what can i expect that day what happens you know it sounds scary you know who's going to protect me and who's going to look out for my best interest what do I do? So the mediation you're all of 100 pounds. So what do you do there?
1: So what I always tell clients for a mediation is it's actually, you know, the best part of your case because it's simply an informal settlement conference. It's the best opportunity to get your case resolved and unlike your deposition where you're sitting there and you're in the hot seat, you know, you're answering questions that are personal to you. Um, you're doing all the talking in your deposition. At the mediation, you're simply there. You don't actually have to speak as the plaintiff. It's simply a, like I said, a settlement conference. So basically what will happen is you'll be in a conference room setting, and you'll have your attorney on your behalf, and then you'll have a defense attorney or two, depending on how many are on your case, and an adjuster from an insurance company who's the person with the check-writing authority to right. resolve the case. And then you'll have a neutral third party who is the mediator. And the mediator has no interest in the outcome of your case. They uh, are w- simply there. Uh, what's their his th- job or her job? Him or her, he or she, I should say, is simply there to facilitate negotiations between the parties. So they're not a judge or an arbitrator. They're not a decision maker. They don't listen to evidence and decide, you know, the defendant was at fault or the plaintiff was partially, you know, at fault as well. Uh, They simply listen to both sides' presentation of the case. And then the parties break up into two separate rooms and the mediator acts as, like I said, a facilitator of negotiations and goes back and forth between the parties with numbers, offers, you know, and demands in attempts to resolve the case.
0: How long does that process take?
1: So the mediation process itself can be anywhere between an hour and three or four, depending on the complexity of the case and depending on whether or not it's ever have a, you know, having a shot at resolution. If a defense comes in and an insurance company says, look, we're not paying you much of anything, and we value the case more than that. There's not really much to talk about, and the mediation will quickly impasse.
0: Okay, and I know this is uh, kind of a general overview. So uh, <coughs> there's a lot more specific items that go into litigation itself. But take me through one item in particular that uh, I'm often asked about. You know, um, people ask stop me all the time and you know say, Matt, tell me what is a proposal for settlement. You know, what does that mean? How is that a tool to get a case resolved? What are the implications of a proposal for settlement? I mean, I was just the other night in a grocery store, and uh, you know, this nice lady stopped me, and she said, I know you do practice personal injury law, and I have a personal injury case going on right now if another car accident lawyer in town, and sadly, she didn't choose us, but what is a proposal for settlement, Mr. Dolan? I was like, you know, we'll talk to Julie about that. I mean, I knew the answer, but uh, all kidding aside, explain.
1: So proposals for settlement are creatures of Florida statute, right? and are, there's also a Florida rule of civil procedure, which, which governs a proposal for settlement, or a PFS for short. And essentially what it is, is this. What the law says is that after 90 days in litigation, meaning 90 days after the lawsuit is filed, either party can serve upon the other what is called a proposal for settlement. Now, prior to proposals for settlement being filed, each party can always call up the other and you know, make an offer to resolve a case or make a demand for policy limits or things of that nature. And the other party can say, hey, no, I'm not interested in." resolving hang up the phone or hey no we're not gonna pay you that you know move on Um, and there's no financial ramifications for declining those types of offers or those types of demands and that's where a proposal for settlement is distinguished so in a proposal for settlement if it's served upon you as the plaintiff or as the defendant you have 30 days to accept the proposal if you accept the proposal within 30 days that's it your case is settled it's resolved everyone goes on their way and the case is done if you do not accept the proposal and just for purposes of easy math as if i as the plaintiff serve a proposal to the defendant in the amount of ten thousand dollars the defendant has 30 days to accept the proposal if they don't accept their proposal and you go to trial and you get a final judgment after a jury verdict that's 25% or more than the amount of the proposal, the defendant has to pay my attorney's fees and costs associated with trying the case from the date of filing the proposal. So basically what the law does, it's punitive in nature. It has punishing a party who could have settled a case, had the opportunity to settle the case and didn't, makes the other party drag out the case and go to trial And a jury of six peers agrees with me as the plaintiff that my case is worth in excess of $10,000, and you should have, could have, and probably would have now resolved back in the day. So they're going to punish you by making you pay uh, certain fees and costs. And it is important to note that it works in the inverse in the sense that if a defendant filed a proposal for settlement to a plaintiff, say $10,000, the defendant, if the defendant got a final judgment that was 75% or less than the amount of the proposal, so $74,99 or less, the plaintiff could be responsible for paying the defendant's fees and costs. So it's a, it's a cost and fee shifting statute that has legal and financial ramifications, so they're taken very seriously, and they're also a very good opportunity to get the case resolved. If the defense is not being amenable to negotiating after litigation
0: we're at mediation we cannot get the case resolved with a fruitful outcome what can be done next what happens next when does the case go to trial
1: so the next step in the case is to set the case for trial right and once you get the case set for trial the court will put out an order that has all the relevant dates that each party needs to abide by for certain things so there's witness and exhibit lists that need to be exchanged, expert disclosures, each party needs to tell the other side what experts they have hired, and that'll give each party the opportunity to depose those experts, to develop their case, to figure out what those opinions are going to be, and then just prepare the case for trial. I mean, it's it's a lot of work that goes into it in terms of coming up with demonstrative exhibits to really kind of demonstrate to the jury the extent of your plaintiff's injuries. If you've undergone a surgery, Oftentimes, we'll come up with demonstrative boards that really illustrate to the jury you know, what has happened. If someone has a cervical fusion, you know, we can talk about that all day long, but really what we have found that what studies show is beneficial is to really demonstrate through illustrations. People are visual learners to the jury of what that means. So we come up with those things. We meet with our experts. We prepare our witnesses, and we get the case ready to go to trial.
0: And what is that process of getting a case ready for trial? What does that mean?
1: Well, like I said, so you're going to want to take the depositions of the experts that are involved on the other side. Uh, You're going to want to explain to your client uh, really what to expect in terms of, you know, there is no guarantee as to an outcome. Every case is going to have pros and every case is going to have cons. But when you are left with a position that the insurance company has left you with no choice, they're not making a sufficient offer and you're forced to go to trial, Uh, you present the case as best possible on behalf of your client. We will conduct focus groups, uh, which is basically essentially uh, paying just members of the community uh, to sit down and to hear the facts of the case. And what it does for us as trial lawyers is it really helps center on what are some of the issues that a potential juror might take issue with. Because as lawyers, sometimes we get caught up. We've been living with these cases and working with them for years. We know what we think are the pros and cons, uh, but really, what might a juror see? So we'll focus group the case. We'll get ideas from people in the community because, as I always remind clients, you know, jurors are simply six people, uh, cross section of the community. You know, it could be you go to Seven Eleven and it's the six people that are standing in line before you. Those could be your potential jurors. So. What we might think is very important, a juror, a juror might potentially discount. So it's important to kind of gain that information so that we can tailor our theory of the case accordingly.
0: Okay. And what can we expect at trial itself?
1: So at trial itself, what will happen first is there will be a, a day of what's called voir dire, uh, which is when you actually pick or exclude members of the jury. So oftentimes uh, in Pinellas County you'll get a panel of 24 individuals that have been called for jury duty Um, and again these are people that are 18 years or older without felony convictions that simply have a driver's license so it could be you know again look around six people those could be people on your panel and essentially what we're allowed to do as trial lawyers is we're allowed to conduct an examination of the panel so what we want to do obviously as plaintiff's lawyers is we want to figure out hey how many people do we have on this panel that simply hate plaintiffs hate car accident cases, you know, are activists for tort reform, just are simply against us. So what we try to do is we try to parse out some of the the bias of some of these individuals that are on the panel um, and just really try to determine who we might be able to uh, remove from the panel for cause simply because they have prejudice and things against the case that they can't set aside because we need a fair and impartial juror panel to try the case. So that's day one. That's number one thing when we get to trials, what we're trying to do is we're trying to pick those six people and one alternate that's gonna serve as our jury, as our decision-making panel.
0: And then as the trial goes on, what do we expect?
1: So as the trial goes on, you're <coughs> gonna hear a presentation of witnesses. As plaintiff, it is our burden of proof. We have the burden of proof to walk in to prove ele- every element of our case. So that's, we need to prove negligence. We need to prove that someone else is at fault for causing the crash or in a slip and fall that there was a duty that was breached by a landowner or someone that owes a duty to keep a premise um, safe for the occupants, and we need to prove causation, obviously that the incident caused the injuries you're complaining of, and we need to prove damages, that you have out-of-pocket medical expenses and that you've been harmed and that you need to be compensated. So because it's the plaintiff's burden of proof, we put on our evidence first. So you'll hear from witnesses, which can be your treating physicians, Uh, If you've had a surgery, it can be the surgeon that's performed the operation on you, that's going to come in and testify to the jury that these are the things that he's done for you, that these are the treatments that you might need moving forward. And then, of course, we need a doctor to opine that, yes, indeed, it is this incident, this accident uh, that has caused these injuries you're complaining of. So you'll hear from experts treating physicians, potentially radiologists. If it's a disputed liability case, you'll hear from accident reconstructionists or other types of liability experts um, basically proving every element of your case and then as the plaintiff you know it's obviously your trial you're going to be up on the stand and you're going to be talking about your injuries talking about your accident and you're going to be giving that testimony on your behalf to explain to the jury you know everything that's happened to you and why it is that you're you're, you are where you are
0: what's the typical life of a jury trial?
1: In a car accident case you know here in Florida usually depending on again the amount of experts uh, four to five days really three to five I mean depending on the the amount of experts sometimes the defense will go overboard and even though we see it as a very streamlined case uh, defense might hire five experts for some reason so you know depending on on what the defense is for the particular case will really dictate how long the trial goes
0: how often do cases go to trial
1: really depends I mean the reality is that a lot of cases are resolving prior to trial car accident cases in Florida a lot of that has to do with the proposals for settlement the risks um, and essentially you know the cost benefit of, of trying a case because with car accidents in Florida and if you look at you know different verdicts the, the issue is that there's a particular Florida statute that dictates what you need to prove in order to obtain non economic damages. So, what I mean by that is in Florida, oftentimes a jury will award you your economic damages that's your past medical expenses, your lost wages, you know, things that are hard and fast numbers. But in order to obtain non economic damages, that's your pain and suffering, those are those intangible losses, loss of enjoyment of life. Uh, mental anguish, pain and suffering, those you don't have a hard and fast number. So what the legislature has done is they've actually, and they call it the permanency threshold, they've articulated in a statute that in order to obtain those types of damages, you need to prove permanency. You need to prove in a car accident case in Florida that you have suffered a permanent injury, which can be loss of use of a limb, loss of an importantly bodily function, permanent disfigurement other than scarring or the catch-all is any other permanent injury uh, within a degree of medical probability. So they make it difficult in that you have to prove permanency in order to obtain uh, those other types of damages. And because of that, you know, the insurance company uses that to evaluate the case. And so when you get an offer from an insurance company, you really need to look at, you know, this is, what the offer means to me today versus if I go to trial and my attorney spends, you know, thirty to $50,000 trying a case, but the jury only gives me my past medical bills and my economic damages, well, where does that leave me at the end of the day?
0: Understood. Well, appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time today, Julia.
1: You're very welcome. And it's a pleasure to be here. And
0: episode number five of the Dolan Law Group podcast. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.